Well, it's a delight to have everybody here. We had a great luncheon, very exciting conference so far. This is kind of a highlight I think a lot of us are looking forward to, to delve into some of the questions surrounding reality and the experience that we all have in life and uh, looking at uh, uh, the diversity of life, the origins of life, various things of that nature. And so I feel like a piano player is sitting be- between two, two geniuses, uh, which is pretty much the case. <laughs> and I'm delighted to have them both here. I want to introduce them to you in case you don't know them. Uh, and by the way, uh, we have cards that have been passed out to all of you, or most of you. If you need a card, you can also request one by waving. Uh, and there are pens in the pews for you to use to write. And if you have a question um, that comes up in your mind, you could write it down, and we'll try to ask some of the audience questions of our two experts uh, when it comes to this topic. So feel free to write it down on your card, and then I will at a certain point, probably about 15 to 20 minutes in, uh, instruct you to send them to the center aisle, and we will collect them, and then we'll do what we can on answering as many as we can. Does that sound like a fair game plan? And also, we will have this, uh, we're videotaping this. We also have a podcast of all the sessions in the conference available at the Bethel Christian Center website. And so, uh, we're just delighted you're all here, and let's just dive in here. I want to introduce first and foremost here Dr. Zachary Lewis. We're extremely honored to have Dr. Lewis here. He's a highly learned uh, man and uh, very instrumental in the educational system here in this part of the country. And uh, it's a delight to have him here. Let me just say a few words about him. He's a native of Huntington, West Virginia. Dr. Lewis studied at Virginia Tech, from which he obtained a Ph.D. in theoretical physics in 2013. Uh, Zachary now lectures at North Carolina State University, where he is also an advisor for the Secular Student Alliance Club. I'd like you to welcome Dr. Lewis today. And you're going to notice an interesting fact. Both of our uh, folks here that are entering into this conversation are from the great state of West Virginia. I think that's cool. And I just want to add a personal note. I told them earlier when we were at lunch that uh, my mother's side of the family, my mom was born in Pleasance County, West Virginia. So I got some hillbilly blood flowing through my veins too. So this is going to be the West Virginia onslaught today. Are you with me, people? And so uh, let me just read a little bit about Mike's uh, story. Born and raised in Logan, West Virginia, Mike became involved with drugs and alcohol while in high school as he went deeper into sin. Later, I didn't write this, he wrote it. So uh, I don't want to, I'm not trying to pick on him, but this is what he wrote because he's proud of what Jesus has done. Later, while attending Marshall University, of which he is a graduate, he became an agnostic. On March 23rd, 75, he had a life-changing experience. The power of sin was broken when he met Jesus Christ. His life took on new meaning as the Lord prepared him for the work he was called to do. Evangelist Manuel travels in ministry throughout the United States. In addition to that, he is also engaged in Christian apologetics, creation science, through debates and seminars. He is the National Director of Evangelism for the Fellowship Network. Mike and his wife, Kathy, live in West Virginia, the home base of their ministry. Please welcome Evangelist Mike Manuel. I, I heard somebody say one time they went to a debate and a hockey game broke out. Did you ever hear that? It's, so, but we're going to try to keep this all wonderful. And both of these are, guys are gentlemen. We're here just for information's sake, just to learn uh, the things that, are, that, are, that we're all questioning and wondering about and from the different perspectives, get that perspective. I think it's helpful to all of us to look deeper into these mysteries and these questions and the things that we're uh, interested in. And so let's get right to it. And what we're going to do is open. We're going to ask Dr. Lewis to respond first. We're going to have a five-minute 
introduction from each of them. They can say a little bit about themselves or uh, move on to the topics that we're about to address in a general sense. Then we're going to ask some questions. And we'll have a timer down in the front. He's got a little yellow card. Let's see the yellow card. That's for a minute left. And then he's got the red card, and that's for you done. So anyhow, <laughs> we'll try to give you a heads up and not be too strict on that. But we're going to try to keep on schedule. All right, Dr. Lewis, please. Testing. This on? Everyone hears yep. me? Yeah, in the back, yes? You're good. Okay. All right, good. Um, first off, I want to thank everyone for the invitation. Uh, Randy, uh, everyone here at Bethel and the uh, Fellowship Network for hosting this. Um, I'm, I really can't put into words how important I think that this kind of discussion is, um, if not in the detail and the topic, in the tone, in, in being respectful towards people that we don't agree with or understand I think it's something that we see too little of today, and I, I'm I'm very enheartened, and and I I I, I have no words, right? <laughs> it's uh, express it very well. Thanks. Um, and uh, another thing that you're going to notice in, in in today is I really don't like talking about myself. Um, <laughs> I wrote a very short introduction, and even then, it was probably about four sentences too long <laughs> for comfort. Um, uh, so, uh, I do want to say in my introduction that, uh, a uh, little bit about why I'm here, what, what my goals are for being here, because it might be a, a weird kind of thing. Why is this, you know, person from, uh, the university coming in and, and having this talk in the first place? Um, some of my colleagues might, I think, undeservedly think that this would be hostile territory. Of course, they don't know what I've seen, um. And I hope to convince them otherwise. And I think that uh, I'm going to show them clips of this, and, and hopefully they'll help change their mind. Um, but the, uh, I, I'm here to learn. I think first and foremost, it's an opportunity, I think, to learn. Uh, I think it's important to understand, or essential to understand, uh, uh, challenging uh, positions and ideas as it is understood by the strongest defenders and adherents to those ideas. I think that I do myself no good by trying to, you know, discredit or, or really weigh something until I've heard it, as it's been said, by someone who really understands it and can really speak well for it. Uh, so I'm really grateful to have that opportunity here. Um, and I, my other goal is to honestly represent the positions of uh, other academics um, as far as, you know, the topics uh, that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, as far as I understand them, and I, I got to put a big caveat on that, I'm only an expert when it comes to quantum mechanics and uh, and uh, physics, a bit less so, science, even less so, theology, all that stuff. Uh, you're going to hear me say I don't know a lot when we veer too far out of my area of expertise. Kind of want to apologize uh, ahead of time for that. Um, and I also want to say that I'm not here to. Uh, persuade anyone. I'm just here to share and have a, you know, a, a polite conversation about these topics and am really glad for the opportunity. Excellent. And I'm impressed by the words quantum, what is it? Mechanics. I don't know what that is, but I'm sure it has some, something to do with our existence. That much I know. Yeah, that's exciting. Okay. Well, let's hear from uh, Mike. Go ahead, Mike. I want to say, first of all, Professor Lewis, I appreciate you participating in this discussion. And our Vice President, Randy Estelle, uh, to moderate this debate, thank uh, Don Westbrook, Carol Westbrook, Bethel Christian Center for hosting this debate. 
I believe it's an important matter. It is of utmost importance uh, to be able to share information, as the professor said, and let you weigh that information. There's a misunderstanding to a great degree among the general population about evangelical Christians. Some people have the erroneous idea that they are backwood hayseeds, uneducated, illiterate, riding around the back of a pickup truck holding a shotgun. But a study was commissioned a few years ago, and evangelical Christians have a 2.3 higher grade average than the general population. And we in the Christian community should embrace science. It's not science we have disagreements with. It may be the conclusions and the speculations and ideas of men that we may differ with. We believe the God of the Bible is the God of creation. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Just if you walked into an art museum and saw a painting on the wall, it wouldn't be a big jump to say there was a painter. Or if you drove up to New York City and saw skyscrapers, it wouldn't be a stretch to say there was a construction company. And I believe when we look at the complexity, intricacy of the universe, we can know there was a design to it. But it's so good to have these discussions so we can reach and build bridges. One rendering of the word priest in the Latin pontificus means to build a bridge. And we need to make connections as Christians. We should also always be respectful, civil when we talk to people that look at things different than you and I. We should never be boisterous, difficult, belligerent, overbearing. Paul said in Ephesians 4.15 to speak the truth in love. Christ said in Matthew twenty two thirty seven, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and your mind and strength. I like something Josh McDowell said. When people become Christians, they don't commit intellectual suicide. Before I became a Christian, I did research. I couldn't just embrace a religion that I didn't believe in. And Josh McDowell said something else. My heart cannot rejoice in what my mind rejects. And I thank you all for participating in this debate, attending this debate. Appreciate Pastor Darrell Davis of Rev Up Ministries bringing his cameras to uh, film this discussion. I believe we're going to have a good time. Uh, we want to have some levity, and you'll be able to participate by asking questions. Uh, so that's all I have to say. Very good. And, and, and there will come a point here, I don't know if I mentioned this, in 15 or 20 minutes where I'll ask you to pass those questions in. So if you have any questions that are rattling around in your mind, put them down because Dr. Lewis and Evangelist Manuel are both very interested in hearing from all of you and kind of talking about it from your perspective. So we'll be gathering those here shortly. I'll give you some direction. But in the meantime, I'm going to ask a couple of questions, and we'll see where it goes from here. And I think it should be interesting uh, and a lively debate and uh, really a conversation more than a debate. It's, it's really about just conversing and connecting. Um, let me just uh, read this first question that we have down. Each of you, please give a brief explanation why you, in your opinion, uh, either ha have a confidence in either Darwinianism or creationism as the best model for explaining the diversity of life. Now, uh, we, we could also talk about the origins, and maybe we'll do that, but let's just talk about the diversity of life first and foremost, because I think, I think both would agree that that's kind of a separate issue 
uh, it's connected, but in terms of discussing it, we'll stay with this question first, the diversity of life. What's the best model? Dr. Lewis, take it away. Why me first? <laughs> we can go the other way if you want. You want to go the other way? Um, I really don't like hearing myself talk, but <laughs> I, I, I can start. Um, we love to hear you talk. <laughs> uh, and, and again, um, uh, feel free to interrupt me or, or, or jump in at any point. I'm very used to that. Um, uh, professionally, we, we uh, physicists interrupt each other during talks all the time. <laughs> I've never seen an uninterrupted 15 minutes of a talk ever. So it's, it's something I'm quite used to. Um, even though I do teach and the students are usually a bit more timid, definitely feel free to jump in. Um, so I think one thing that I, I would like to talk, talk a little bit about briefly is what makes a good explanation in my mind in order to answer why I think um, Darwin's ideas uh, and some of the things that followed from Darwin's ideas are, uh, are a good explanation. What, what does that mean? What is a good explanation? Now, there are many ways of, of looking at the world and, and telling a story about what's going on. And I think that science is just that. It's a way of telling a particular kind of story. Um, I have, you know, I, I spent a, lived with a philosopher for a year, so I'm kind of hesitant about the word truth anymore. Um, so I don't want to say that science gives us truth. Uh, I don't think that's true. <laughs> um, but... Uh, a, a good explanation, what I think that science does in that way, uh, well, I, I'm pragmatic, and I, 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 like for, um, I like for models and for stories to give me something that I can use. And uh, what I look for in a good explanation is a um, model that makes specific predictions that are accurate and precise. Um, and that those predictions reliably match observations over and over and over again. Um, so with that being said, I think that, um, I think that I'm most, uh, I'm, I most prefer the explanations uh, presented by, um, well, it's not just Darwin. Darwin started this whole thing off uh, with an idea about natural selection, uh, acting on species to give... Um, well, it was more of an observation. He just said, look, there are some things that cause some members of a group to uh, better thrive in their environment, and whatever it is that they um, have, whatever properties that they have that help them survive, if they pass those on over time, we're going to tend to see those things show up in the group more and more. Um, he didn't know why that would happen. He didn't know the methods of heredity. We learned about genetics Largely um, afterwards, in the early 1900s, we put together Darwin's ideas with uh, early genetics to come up with what's called the, if you want to go uh, Google this stuff, uh, the neo-Darwinian synthesis. And then we added what we know about biochemistry and the real detailed uh, evidence of DNA and how all those mechanisms work into what we call now the modern synthesis. There's a lot of details in there. But what we find that with those details, we're able to predict and... Uh, and again, that's for me what a good explanation is. We're able to predict a lot of the um, things that happen during the development of organisms. Uh, we understand, in that sense, the similarities between um, practically everything uh, that we seem to think is alive, and even some of the things like viruses, where it's questionable are they alive or not. 
we understand, uh, I think, how we how those interact, and uh, the modern synthesis is kind of the framework for that uh, for that understanding. Um, so, um, and, and and like you said, origins is kind of a different thing. I don't think that uh, it's very important that as scientists, you know, we don't take a model and try and apply it outside of where it's been validated. That's where you get into danger. People selling books do this, and I'm going to warn you about that. People who work as scientists during the day and they want to make some money and they sell a book, they will say things that are not supported to sell those books. I think that's unfortunate. I think they do everyone a disservice to do that. Um, but unfortunately, some of these ideas that you may associate with, um, with modern science are just stories that are, you know... Maybe they're somewhat consistent with what the current models are saying, but they're really more uh, fantastical. Not science in the true sense. Yeah, they're 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 inspired by science, but they're not limited by science. So, um, in the same way that you know the predictions that they talk about aren't aren't uh, aren't tested with observations. Um, you see in the Darwinian model, you see predictability. Yeah, and, and predict um, changes that happen in that diversity. If you make some kind of a change in the environment, you want to know what's going to happen to the ecosystem that lives in that environment. And I think that um, the Darwinian, the things that follow Darwin, the modern synthesis, really help us to understand precisely what those kind of changes are. Right. Yeah. And, okay, I guess we're, we're, we're red. Yeah. Okay, very good. My, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I guess I do need to mic up. I've only held one of these almost every day of my life for the last 35 years. <laughs> hey, what is this? Okay, Mike, uh, go ahead and, and talk about uh, your views of creationism, uh, and then we'll get into some other stuff. But let's do that for five minutes. What we do know is life comes from preexistent life. There's not been one observance in man's sojourn on this planet. The life came from inanimate, non-living matter. So spontaneous generation is idle speculation. Biogenesis is the truth. And John 1, 4 said, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And when you think about the first beginnings of life, and even Darwin, the founder of evolutionary thought, made this statement. He said, There should have been millions of transitional forms in the fossil record, and there are none. He was baffled by this. He said, All of nature should be in confusion. I had a discussion with a microbiologist professor from Moorhead State University about 14 years ago, and as we uh, conversed, and I appreciate uh, how that Professor Lewis, his demeanor, and I appreciate his uh, spirit. But we were talking about predictions. And I asked him, I said, now, according to your theory, and science is based upon observation and experimentation, how did life ever come about? How did evolution bring us to where we are today? I said, because you believe that an amoeba came about on its own, which is a single-cell life form. And through mitosis, it divided itself. And then you have two undifferentiated cells. And I said, how did this cell know I'm going to be the male? And independently, this other cell said, I'm going to be the female. And then you might say a half a million years later or a million years later, they jettisoned asexual reproduction and came together with sexual reproduction. And at that point, he cursed, told me to go to hell, and left. And there was 
some young students there, and uh, one young lady said, preacher, did that hurt your feelings when he told you to go to hell? I said, no, I rather felt good about it. She said, what are you talking about? I said, look at it this way. He says he's an atheist. He told me to go to hell. He must believe in an afterlife. I think I made some progress. <laughs> Makes some sense. But when you, when you look at the basis of evolution, we go from the simple to the complex. Actually, we go from the complex to the simple. There's more complexity at the cellular, microcellular level than there is at the composite macro level of the entire human body. Francis Collins was a lead geneticist in decombing the human genome in the year 2000. He was an agnostic going into the project. Upon completion of the project, he wrote a book called DNA, The Language of God. In the first instance of life, when a sperm fertilizes an egg and a zygote is formed, there's enough information to fill 100 complete sets of encyclopedias. That is amazing when you stop and think of it. The life begins, and there's encoded information. And Richard Dawkins, who teaches at Oxford College in England, a prominent evolutionary biologist, made this statement. Biology is the study of things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Another evolutionist said, as we study the laws of nature, we must constantly remind ourselves that though it gives the appearance of functionality, it came about by random natural processes. If I walk up this flight of stairs and see a watch on the floor, and I pick the watch up, I don't think to myself, wow, the metal came together on its own. The hands of the watch synchronized themselves, and now, fancy word, I have a chronometer. I have a watch. I know there was a watchmaker. So I believe that we look at the universe and we see all of the diversity, intricacy, rhythm, symmetry, order, design, sequence. And to think that could come out of randomness and chaos stretches credulity in my estimation. Okay, but how do you really feel about it? Okay, I'm just joking. <laughs> that was an excellent, that was excellent. Very good. Both, both uh, gentlemen, I think, have made very good points, very legitimate points, and very good cases. And I think that's part of what this is about. It's trying to just hear what those points are and then work with that in our own lives. Each one of us have got to come to decisions in our lives about all sorts of things. It's not just which restaurant we're going to go to on Saturday afternoon. You know, it, it has to do with life. It has to do with how we view the universe. And this helps us sort through it. And sometimes a perspective will change uh, how you look at something. We have to find out what's the correct perspective, if there is one. I happen to believe there is. I'm, I'm sure all of us believe in what we believe in. Uh, and so that's, that's – but you guys have to absorb that. And if, again, keep writing down any questions you have, and we're going, to, we're going to take that another step. And it may be that uh, Dr. Lewis may want to respond to uh, uh, Mike in, in terms of what he just said, but I want to add another question into the mix that's related, and that would be this one. What problems and deficiencies do you see – which with each other's models, and, and I think both of you already pointed out a little bit of that, but then also of your own model, the thing that you believe. Do you think there are some areas that, in terms of logic or in terms of looking at it scientifically, might cause a problem for, for some? You know? And so let's ping pong back over to Dr. Lewis and see how he would uh, respond to all that, just see what his thoughts are about it. Um, well, 
along with being shy, I always like being critical of myself too. So I'll start by I'll start by by talking about um, the uh, the challenges I see with the the current the modern synthesis the the set of ideas that have come from the Darwin Stardust and. I think one of the big ones is is exactly that, the origin of life. It is a big question that we currently are, uh, scientists are trying to get a handle on. There's a, there's a few ideas um, because, uh, as Mike said, scientists have never seen, this is absolutely true, scientists have never seen inanimate chemistry turn into what we would call life. Right. Now, there are some features which look kind of close. Right? There are some features like... Um, if you just take if you just take uh, a fat and you put it a glob of fat into water, well, it doesn't. Sometimes it'll be oil and it'll just kind of uh, smear out over the surface, but it, it'll usually kind of clump up into globs, right? And that's just something that fat does when it's in water. And uh, if you uh, if you ever sit and play with fat and water long enough, one of the things you'll notice is that if you have a big fat glob next to a little small fat glob and they're floating in the water and they come together. Uh, just by the, the physics of the situation, uh, there's a complicated explanation in terms of thermodynamics, but it is as if the big one will eat the small one. Um, the surface tension pulls it in, and it will just absorb the smaller blob. And if you shake, if the water's actually boiling or you shake the thing, it can split apart. So are these, are these fat blobs alive? They seem to eat each other. They seem to break apart um, and, and reproduce in some sense, but we don't really call that alive. Um, and uh, I, I think that we have to, I think that this is what scientists are doing. And, and I think it's, it's, it's a strength, so I'm sorry for getting into a little bit of a strength here, but I think it's a strength that we don't stop asking the question. We keep looking for the things that uh, do uh, challenge us. And that's one of the things that I think that, um, I think that people that are intellectually honest like Mike are doing that I don't think enough people are doing is being open to challenge. So I don't think I have that problem with creationism um, in total, just some of its adherents and some people, scientists have the same problem, but people just uncritically accept too much. And they don't, they aren't open to new challenges and new information. And this is one of the, especially in today's day and age, we learn so much. People are doing experiments on the other side of the world beforehand when are you going to hear that? Nowadays, internet, you get an email, you have a video of the experiment that they're doing live. Um, and we learn so much so quickly that it is difficult to keep up with all of that. Um, but I think that um, these are not insurmountable problems. I think that we will... Um, my, current, my current bet, if I were to bet, um, and I guess in a way I am, <laughs> that, uh, that, that we will find an explanation and a model that actually will let us predict uh, uh, details on how life started, um, but we are not there yet, and it is a big open, uh, open problem and open kind of sore. Because if you can't explain that, what are you doing, right? If you cannot explain that, you're you're really at a loss of of the the, the whole thing uh, kind of collapsing on itself. Uh, and I, I heard Richard Dawkins, who wrote the God Delusion. Uh, say something like that. He said that he believes in terms of the origin of, of, of even the cosmos that there will come a Darwin who will explain it at some point, you know, at some point. I think you're kind of saying that some of these things are open-ended questions and we have to, we owe it to ourselves to keep searching and to keep digging into it and looking into the mechanisms of things and the way things are. Is that kind of what you're 
Am I getting that right? Oh, absolutely. The, yeah. and, and especially with things like with things like life, I think we have a much better chance of answering a question like that than we do about the cosmos. We right. can see a lot of different forms of life. We don't have many examples of different universes to deal with, so right. we're kind of limited in the kind of observations right. we can make. Right. And I think that we may be, uh, unfortunately, we may be against the the limits of observable science already or in the near future as far as what we can really learn about the cosmos because the observations we're making now are, are pretty spectacular and they seem to be hard to move past. I don't want to say that they're not because that's, you know, <laughs> easiest way to be wrong in science is to say, oh, no one's ever going to be able to measure that. <laughs> give, some, give, some, give some bright, motivated people, um, which is one of the reasons I'm in teaching. Uh, I'm not going to be able to think up this stuff, but I think that uh, I'm inspired by the next generation, always inspired by them. You, you do believe there are some legitimate science minds that embrace a, a concept of God or a concept of the spiritual, uh, metaphysical type? Oh, absolutely. At NC State, um, a, good, a good portion of my colleagues um, are, are theistic Christians. Um, some of them are, are quite outspoken and working with uh, student groups on campus. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, one of them is a uh, biochemist, so knows the biochemistry really well. And they're the, uh, they're the advisor for uh, Ratio Christi, our campus uh, apologist. It's more in the Catholic tradition, but they're, yeah. they're, it's an apologistic. Right, sure. Yeah. Okay, well, that's, that's very good perspective. Very interesting to hear you talk about that. Uh, I want to pause just one second before we ask Mike to comment about some of the weaknesses, perhaps, of the creationist model which in any can flow into whatever, but uh, 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 kind of uh, mirroring what uh, Dr. Lewis has done. But I want to make sure that all of you uh, take a moment to pass any questions you have down to the center aisle. Just pass them down to the center aisle uh, quickly, as quickly as you can, so we can keep moving. We don't want to keep here too long. But this is, how many are enjoying this? It's interesting, isn't it? Isn't it fascinating? And uh, we have two very articulate men, I think, that are doing a great job discussing these issues. Pass them on down. We'll have somebody, I think Mike's going to help me with that. Is that right? Mike's going to help me with that. Get get those, grab those uh, from the center aisle up and back. Uh, anybody else need to pass it down? Do that quickly. Okay, there they are. Just hold them out for him and make sure they, that uh, we get those. And as I say, I have to, disclaimer, we may not get to all those questions. And I think the gentleman will be here for a few minutes afterwards. If you've got something you need to talk about, it perhaps can take a few minutes to do that. But uh, we'll do what we can with the time we have, okay, and uh, try to ask these questions. And um, thank you very much. Okay, good. Okay, Mike, would you like to pick it up where we left off? Uh, the weakness I see in the creation model is not with the model itself. It's with Christians. First Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We as Christians ought to have an inquisitive desire to study science because we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. So therefore, all the processes we see were created by God. Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the honor of kings is to search it out. I'd like to mention noted paleoanthropologist evolutionist uh, Richard Leakey. He said, if pressed, now he's a contemporary, if pressed, I would have to say, as to date we have no fossil connecting men to apes or any other species. He said, if further pressed, I would have to say there's more evidence for an abrupt arrival of man on this planet than a long, gradual process of evolving. Stephen Hawking, 
noted atheist, and I think uh, he is a, a physicist. He said this, I think, in an unguarded moment. It's hard to conceive the universe as we know it without thinking it was made for God by us, you know, for, made for us by God, that the laws of physics were specifically made for mankind. Albert Einstein, now he was not a Christian, but he did believe in God. And he said, to be able to understand the laws of nature presupposes a belief in religion because you would have to suppose there would be orderly processes and you could take these orderly processes and apply it to the unknown. That's the only way we can find out the unknown is if we know the known. We have to know the known, apply it to the unknown. Now think about the design argument for creation. I think it's compelling. And the law of causation, for every cause there's an effect, no effect without its cause. Every cause has an equal and opposite effect, and it takes a cause to produce an effect. For many years, cosmologists accepted and embraced the steady-state theory. Everything was fixed in time and space. That's now been discarded, and by the way, for two reasons. If the universe was eternal, you and I wouldn't be in this moment. We would have had to cross over an eternal number of other moments to get to this moment, which be, would be an impossibility. Number two, we know that the universe is dying a slow heat loss death. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. In a closed system, heat energy dissipates, which cannot be transferred back into usable energy. And it's interesting in Psalm 102, 25 through 27, Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, God said he created the foundation of the earth and the heavens were passing away and he would fold it up like an old garment, but his years would never fail. And when God did create the universe, we now know, according to the first law of thermodynamics, matter cannot be destroyed or created. It can only be changed. You can burn wood. All you've done is alter the form of of the wood. It'll turn into ash, smoke, or whatever else. Well, Genesis 2.1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in the day that God made it. So therefore, cosmologists believe in the Big Bang Theory. But I would posit this. I don't believe it was an explosion. Detonate dynamite in your living room. Come back a half hour later and see if any improvements have been made. I believe it was a great release of energy. But what caused the explosion? Some cosmologists say that a subatomic atom under intense heat exploded. Cosmic inflation kicked in, and now we see everything that's in existence. If you can believe that, I've got property in Florida I'd like to sell you, and it's not in a swamp area. There had to be something to cause the universe to come into being. Nothing doesn't create nothing, never could, never would. Something, logically, something has to be outside of the universe. And science describes the universe in five terms. Time, energy, space, matter, and motion. You find those five terms in the first two verses of the Bible. In the beginning time, God created energy, the heaven, space, and the earth, matter. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moves. There's your motion. And then... This force outside the universe has to be intelligent. Why? The universe has order and design. Order and design does not come out of randomness and chaos. Something has to be outside of the universe. It has to be intelligent. Intelligence speaks to purpose, purpose to will, and build a will to being. You know, you're talking about causes, and, and we went a little longer with Dr. Lewis. Let's just go another half a minute or a minute. 
And a lot of times when you, when you talk about this and you talk about causes, this law of, of causes, people say, well, God, if you believe God created the universe, then what, what created God? In other words, there's got to be a cause for God if you believe in that concept of cause. So you brought up that thing, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge that point. I mean, how do you answer that? What, where God, I mean, what caused God to exist? Anthroregression takes you nowhere. It is ridiculous on the face of it. What made this or what made this or what made this or what made this will take you nowhere. You only ask where something came from that had a beginning. You wouldn't ask somebody how long was the smell of a rose. You don't determine relevance and odor with a yardstick, but with a sense of smell. You only ask where something came from that came into being. God never came into being. Psalm 90 and 2, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. There has to be something that's forever or nothing would exist. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Do we have those questions yet? I know they're correlating them, figuring it out. Okay. So let's, okay, let's, let's give one more question, and then we're going to get to those audience right away here. Okay? Um, and again, feel free, if you have something to say about what we've already discussed, you, you can take some of the time that we've allotted, you know, to speak to that. Feel free to do that if you want to do that. Um, here's another question. The fossil record and the geological strata hold keys to helping us interpret past events that took place on Earth. What can be understood about the origins of life from studying archaeology and geology, some of these other sciences? Dr. Lewis, do you want to go for that one? Sure, and if you don't mind, I'll, I'll add in cosmology because Mike yes, was please. talking a bit about the Absolutely. origin. Um, one of the, one of the uh, kind of frustrating things, as I've already said, is we, we, we have limitations in what we can, what we can observe. Right? If I look, you know, from my perspective, I look at the fossil record, and I don't expect to see a fossil of the first organism. Fossils are usually made from uh, larger things. It's hard to imagine a single organ, finding an organism, being able to tell that, you know, you're looking at the fossil of a cell. You'd have to have some kind of multicellular map of, of, or colony of things to even hope to have it fossilized. And then the conditions have to be just right for it. So I never expect to see a fossil of the first, uh, the first critter. Um, uh, same thing with the, with the beginning of the universe. Um, the uh, the Big Bang era of our modern universe is when there was a hot, dense state, and we have the universe expands and cools from that hot, dense state. But it was kind of it left over a glow, and we can't really see past that glow because the universe at that time would have been uh, would have been opaque to light, um, as far as we can tell. So when it cooled, it became transparent, and there was some leftover light, and we still kind of see that glow. Uh, we call it the cosmic microwave background. The globe's changed its uh, its properties o- over the uh, years, but um, we really don't expect to see past that. So I know some people in books will say, you know, like Mike said, there's some fundamental atom. Uh, we've got we've got no observations that 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 can uh, that can say yes or no to that, and I think it's irresponsible for scientists to say things like that. Um, I also want to agree with Mike on another point. I think that you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of good logical thoughts and philosophers, theologians. Everyone's been over every side of this thing, and the idea that existence comes from nothing, I think, is an untenable position. I think the best uh, thing that um, one could hope for is that the universe, in some sense, is eternal. Now, it might not have been the universe made of matter in the form that we currently see it. Um, at best, it would have to be in some other type of form. 
the energy that is present would have been there, but in some form that we don't have observations to help us guide to say what it was. Right. And we might not ever have those observations. But I think to say that universe just popped into existence, you know, 14 odd billion years ago, I, I think that's very untenable. Um, and, and I think that... Uh, how many people do you think, on, uh, from your perspective, what percentage would you guess would agree with you? Do you think there's a fair number of them from uh, that maybe it isn't quite so tenable or that might be some other? I think, I think the problem with that is, is who you're asking, right? Yeah. People who have seen the equations that I've seen and the depth of evidence and looked at all of the, you know, the studies and talked to the people that are actually making those observations, I'd say most of us would agree that, that we don't have observations to say that you know, there was some kind of original singularity or origination event. Um, uh, but I think that there's these uh, popular ideas because it, 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 it's un, in some sense conceptually easier to say, okay, things get smaller in the past, so they were really, really, really small in the past, maybe a little point, and then beyond that there was nothing. Um, you know, maybe, but right. maybe not, and we science can't say either can't way we, currently. Can we prove it? I, I, my personal feeling on it is that, again, it was in some other kind of uh, form, the uh, math to me, looks like the math of a phase transition, like when you go from uh, uh, a solid to a liquid or a liquid to a gas is more uh, an appropriate kind of analogy. Um, the, the math that we use to describe the, the Big Bang era kind of looks like that, but again, it's just suggestive. We'd have to be able to make a prediction, check an observation, and I don't think we're going to get those observations. Right, okay. Well, uh, just real quickly, and I don't want to delve into an area that is, uh, I'm not trying to put you on the spot at all. I just want to ask a simple question. Do you hold out any possibility personally that maybe the concept of a creator is even even a remote theoretical possibility? Or do you completely exclude it based on the evidence you see so far? Um, well, I, I think it's very difficult to, um, to um, make a scientific theory that is testable in the, the way that we kind of test theories. We, right. you know, we write papers, we ask people to peer review them, and one of the things that we, we've kind of gotten into the habit of doing is not putting in these kind of elements that we might disagree with that we don't have direct evidence right. for. And we have, you know, we have, you know, Catholic physicists, um, you know, famous Catholic astrophysicists, famous Jewish astrophysicists, famous um, Muslim astrophysicists, Hindu astrophysicists, atheist astrophysicists. And Every time that someone puts in a suggestion of, well, I think it went this way, someone else puts in the other thing, and then you know we get into a useless or an argument that just is not productive. Yeah, and and we're not at that point right now. Um, so I don't think it, I don't think it's it's ruled out by anything by the stretch of in, in the scientific sense. I think that there is looking at archaeology and history. I think there are things that um, that lead me to to think that. Uh, the, the type of uh, the type of um, personal deity that we tend to think of as the creator god yes. um, is uh, has other explanations right. um, aside from its real existence. Okay, um, but I don't see that in the science at all. Like in the in the chemistry and the physics, I don't. Okay, I don't see any um, disproof or. Very good. Thank you. Thank you very much for allowing me to ask that because I, I've often wondered about that. I know that your perspective would be different, obviously, from Mike's. And I'm just curious about how, you know, whether that's even 
out there someplace, maybe as a potential on philosophical basis or something. It's you know, and that's interesting to hear you talk about it. Do we have the questions so that I can? Uh, are they? Where, let's have those. Just bring them on up. Have somebody bring them on up here, and. Yes, we're going to let you do that. Yep, absolutely. Just let me grab these so I can look at them while you're answering. Okay. We're quite organized around here, aren't we? <laughs> Actually, we're doing pretty good considering it's run by a bunch of preachers. Man, I'm telling you, this isn't bad. Okay, Mike, please. I wanted you, I was just going to grab these. Please go. I like it when he said critter. He and I are both from West Virginia. <laughs> That's right. Try to determine the age of the universe in is, is an inexact science. I taught geography many years ago. I was a school teacher from 1975 until October of 1986 when I left teaching and went full-time into evangelistic work. One year, we used a textbook book that said the earth, we are told, was formed five billion years ago. I found another textbook used in the Logan County school system that said the earth, we are told, was formed seven billion years ago. And yet another textbook used in the Logan County school system that said the earth was formed 12 billion years ago. I would pass out the textbook at the beginning of the school year, the textbook we used, and then the other textbooks. I would have the students pass it around. Then I would ask, when was the earth formed? Students would say, Mr. Emanuel, we don't know. One textbook says 5 billion, another 7, another 12 billion. I said, and neither do they know. All that is is a guess. Carbon-14 dating, I've been asked about that before. Carbon-14 dating assumes a rate of carbon loss to be consistent over long periods of time. Evolutionists believe in gradualism, incrementalism. We in the intelligent design community believe in catastrophism. Catastrophic occurrences would have a great effect on the rate of carbon loss. Actually, carbon-14 dating dated snails as being 27,000 years old that were still alive. I believe that most scientists take the thought that an asteroid hit the Yucatan Peninsula and destroyed all the dinosaurs. Most scientists believe that happened. That would have a great effect on the rate of carbon loss. Continental drift. You know, actually, that's mentioned in the Bible. Genesis 10, 25, in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. You could see where South America would fit into Africa. That would have a great effect upon the rate of carbon loss. And I'll mention this. Rick Dalton, who is a minister of the gospel, spirit-filled minister, but he is also a carpenter. He has a construction company. He dynamited the hillside out in Logan, West Virginia, when they put in the Fountain Place Mall. They found a coral reef in the hillside. They called the botanists from Marsh University. They came down, and they said, I guess at one time this hillside was covered by water. Later on, as they dynamited farther into the hillside, they found an oyster bed. The zoologist came down from Marsh University and said, birds flew in from the Atlantic Ocean with oysters in their mouth and dropped them in that location. Now, number one, it's a long flight from the Atlantic Ocean to Logan, West Virginia, and birds get hungry. They're not going to make the trip. I remember in the early 1970s when I was taking a science class at Marshall University, they taught that eyesight came about when sightless fish swam out from under rocks and a sense of membrane began to form on the front lobe of the fish's head. Now, if I'm a fish and I swim out to the sunlight and I get a headache, guess where I'm staying away from? 
But number two, how could a sense of membrane know that the next thing had to happen, the next thing had to happen, and the next thing had to happen? For eyesight to occur, you have to have the complete eyeball intact, optic nerve, pupil, cornea, and iris. The rationale of evolution is specious. If an organism was making it without a mouth, why would a mouth begin to form? Where would the food go to? What good's a mouth without an esophagus, an esophagus without a stomach, and a stomach without a colon? Darwin himself said a small organisms couldn't function without all of its components. It would destroy my theory. The bacterial flagellum has a whip-like structure that acts as an outboard motor. It's self-cooled. It has forward and backward gears. It uh, can move at 1,000 RPMs, disable one component of the mechanism. The entire mechanism is destroyed. For blood to clot, 12 chemical reactions have to occur simultaneously. How could that have evolved? Twelve chemical reactions have to happen at the same time or blood would not clot. Let's uh, move into some audience questions here real quick. Um, this one's directed to Dr. Lewis. Uh, it says, I believe that information theory has made belief in undirected biological evolution and parenthetically life and its diversity come from time, chance, and matter difficult if not impossible. How do you see this? Is that something you can speak to? Am I saying that right? Well, <laughs> Information theory? No, um, I can. It's just I got to address level. Um, um, so one of the things that we uh, are now able to do uh, in the the computer age has really helped us out. We have a, a language now for talking about how information is manipulated and coded that we didn't really used to have. Um, and so we can talk about information in a lot of different ways that seem similar but uh, can be different. Um, like the information in a book, right, is not really just it's how many letters are in the book, right? It's the, the arrangement of order. There's a lot of things. And in some sense, um, that's real information in the book, how the ink is on the page. But it actually relies not just on how many letters and in what order, but it also relies on the environment, our ability to actually extract information from it. Um, same thing with uh, DNA, right? There is information encoded in DNA, but without the de-encoding uh, uh, processes, they wouldn't be encoded in the first place, right? So there's, there's, um, there is a real sense, and I, I do want to, again, agree with Mike on this. There's a real sense in that we as humans have, in some sense, less information. We have fewer chromosomes than some bacteria, some yeast. Um, we are, in that sense, a bit more, com uh, a bit more simple than our, <laughs> our simpler, uh, our uh, simpler uh, uh, other uh, life. But what we have a more complicated version of is everything else. Everything that's expressing and, and unpacking that, and there is. Uh, uh, more complicated systems of of turning that small amount of information into the proteins and tissues that we see. So I think it's it's very um, everything that I've seen uh, allows for more complicated coding mechanisms to allow for a simpler kind of dictionary or simpler kind of password because the coding is getting more complex and. We're still trying to understand exactly how this works, and our language is still seemingly primitive in trying to understand it. So um, I think that that position would 
it, it, when you first look at it, it definitely certainly does look like that. Where's the information going? Where's it coming from? This doesn't seem to make much sense. That is, is a perfectly rational first look. But I, I, I think we're heading in the direction, and I've seen things that uh, give me um, reason to think that uh, we're heading in the direction of being able to, and I think in some very precise areas, we can firmly say that um, information is increasing in a particular sense in, in, in cells. Complexity in some way is increasing, even though uh, complexity is being reduced in other ways. You have a comment about that, Mike? Uh, they say that men and apes are 98% connected. Body-wise, that's true, but we're 93% connected to earthworms. Watermelon, jellyfish, and clouds are 98% water. But there's a difference between watermelons, jellyfish, and a cloud. Take a one and six zeros. It can be spread as one, comma, zero, 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 comma, zero, 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 or point, zero, 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 one. The arrangement makes all the difference in the world. Give a chimpanzee a typewriter. Let him type for an eternity. He won't be able to type Shakespeare's Hamlet or Homer's Iliad or Odyssey. It's beyond his capability. And there are de definite spatial lines. Dogs have 58 chromosomes, 29 pair. Humans have 46 chromosomes, 23 pair. And there's a variety within every species. In the human family, you have the Watusi and the Pygmy, the tall and short end of it. In the dog family, you have the St. Bernard and the Chihuahua, the large and small size of it. But a dog is a dog, and a man is a man. Okay. Um, here's another question for both of you to can speak to. How do you explain the lack of transitional creatures or forms in the fossil record? We've already heard about that from each of you to, on some level. But how would you explain the lack of that, that the transitional forms that should be expected don't seem to be around or what, whatever? So I hate to have you end up first on all these questions, Dr. Lewis. I, we can give you a little time to respond. You would you rather switch it around a little bit? I hate to oh, keep that's fine. comment. Yeah, on you. you I, I, I'm very non-confrontational, so I probably you're wouldn't doing, even... Well, you're doing a great job. <laughs> you're doing a great job. Logan County, where the Hatfields came from in the Hatfield-McCoy feud. McCoy's right. <laughs> came from my county, Kentucky, and traversed over Mingo County in the feuding days. So, so I'm not one pro to feuding I, I, I hate to say this, but my family is from eastern... My Lewises are from eastern Kentucky, from the McCoy area. So Ladies and gentlemen, it's the Hatfields Hatfield and the McCoys! McCoy. That is incredible. If that's the case, I'm leaving where I'm sitting right now. I'm going down there. All right, so. Okay, the lack of transitional yeah, forms. Fossils. What do you think about that, the fossil thing? Noted evolutionists have made mention of that, and it has baffled them. There should have been transitional forms in the fossil record, and there are none. None that overwhelmingly connect men to apes or any other species. You see, prior to the Cambrian period, you don't see any life forms that connect to the complex life forms that abruptly appear in the fossil record with no precursors, predecessors, forerunners, or antecedents. You see complex life forms with nervous systems, with um, brains, lungs, and in fact, Rudolf Raff, he is a noted evolutionist, said, all the body plans of life we know today seem to have appeared in the fossil record. It baffled Richard Dawkins. He's made this statement. We find fully evolved life forms in the fossil record, 
with no forerunners, with no history. And then I think he said it this way, much to the delight of the creationists. So you see in the Cambrian period these complex life forms. Now, that is a, what can you extrapolate from that? How did they get there? I know there's one theory, and Stephen Gould tries to defend this theory. It's called punctuated equilibrium. Life forms continued in their present state, equilibrium, and in one generation, punctuation, they turned into another life form. In other words, you have lizard, 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 bird. Because all the changes, they say, were taking place in the DNA. But wouldn't it manifest in the fossils, appendages appearing, and features disappearing? A bird can't fly on 2% of a wing. 2% of a wing would be an impediment to the survival of the living creature. If a bird evolved, who would the bird mate with? What good is lungs if you can't exhale the air or inhale the air? Did the creature breathe before the lungs developed? How would that have occurred? So when we look at the process of, of evolution as presented today, and you, upon closer examination, all these parts have to be present and functioning for it to happen. The small ch- In fact, in the transitional phase, it would be an impediment to the living creature trying to make the transition. All right. Um, so I would say that, that uh, although we do have a lot of fossils uh, in museums and that we've recovered, fossilization is an extremely rare process. The, the mm-hmm. things that have to be happening for a, uh, even part of a body to be preserved uh, through the fossilization process are incredibly rare. Um, so I think in that, in that sense, it's not that surprising that we don't find, um, that we don't find every single record of every single species. I mean, even the things that we have, you know, we might have a handful of Tyrannosaurus skeletons. Mm-hmm. Those are probably not the same species. They probably lived hundreds of thousand years apart um, you know, we'd recognize them today as different breeds or, you know, birders would say maybe they're different subspecies or something like this. They might not even be able to breed with one another if you want to use that definition for species. They just look the same. Um, so, you know, we say that we've got a lot of tyrannosaurs. No, we have, like, one type of tyrannosaur, and then from half a million years later, we have a different kind of tyrannosaur. It looks most the same, and you have a lot of inference you have to make, and there is a lot of limitation to that. Um, but, uh, like... Like I said earlier, you start with a single-celled life. I don't really, my knowledge of chemistry and geology doesn't tell me that I expect to find a fossil of of that one. I'd be extremely lucky to find a fossil of that. Um, Maybe when you start having multicellular life, you have enough mass to possibly fossilize in some kind of a coherent process. Also, the chemistry, uh, we think the chemistry in the early Earth was a little different, and so maybe the, uh, the fossilization process may have not been as efficient as it was later on. Again, I'm not an expert in these things, but um, but I wouldn't necessarily expect to have a lot of evidence from every single form of life and a lot of evidence once you go early enough back. But that's just in the fossil record. We have a new way of looking at history through genetics that acts as an independent uh, an independent source of information. Um, and it could be completely independent. What we see in the fossil record could, could tell a completely different story from what we see in the, in the genetics. The relationships between 
currently living species, um, the things that we see uh, that indicate that there was shared ancestry in, the, in, in those species. Um, and in that sense, some of the connections are a lot clear. Uh, we, do have, um, we do have places in the fossil record where we would expect to be seeing something we haven't yet. Maybe we're just unlucky, maybe nothing ever fossilized. Um, but in the genetics, we can actually see um, evidence of the transitions that happen. There's always a little part of something that's preserved, um, or um, how do I say this? Uh, if we are a direct ancestor from those earlier forms, we would expect to have evidence from those earlier forms, and we do actually see a lot of evidence. And it seems to um, tell a consistent story with what we're seeing with the, the geological uh, record. Of course, there's a lot of detail there, and if anyone wants to ask afterward, I can go into more, but. I understand, yeah, and a lot of these topics we're trying to address uh, for a, a little broader context, because to get into all the intricate science of it would be, I wouldn't know what y'all were talking about, but I think it's helpful to hear these comments, even if they have a general nature about them, because at least we can get the feel for the how you're exploring the topic, you know. And I hear Dr. Lewis saying, "Look, we're we're delving into this. There's much more to learn. We want to keep an open mind." I think I hear Mike say the same thing. We're both, but they obviously are going to draw certain conclusions at this point in this process, depending on how you look at things. And uh, I, th I think that's what we're hearing today. And I think they're both, that's both valid uh, perspective, you know, and that I might not necessarily land, you know, one way or the other. I, I certainly know what I believe, but I think it's great that we hear these, even if they have a general quality about them. Let's just, we're, we got started about 15 minutes later. We're just going to go another question or so, and then we're going to have to stop because we have our business meeting. We must keep on some kind of schedule. But are you guys enjoying these uh, conversations? Isn't it great? They're doing a great job communicating, and I appreciate it very much. Um, here's another one. According to Lawrence Krauss in his book, A Universe from Nothing, he claims that nothing is the quantum vacuum. Okay, I have no idea what the quantum vacuum is. I have a Kirby vacuum at home, but that's as close <laughs> as I can get. But isn't the quantum vacuum actually something, quote-unquote, and therefore demands a cause for its existence? I have heard people talk about this, but I've never had the time or the inclination to be able to dive into it. Like I said, I'm a piano player. But uh, is God behind it, the question says. Okay, so we switched over to Mike here. I think we're being equal here. Uh, he Some can terms I consider psychobabble. They sound scientifically, but they really aren't. Misnomers. Uh, quantum, what was that? Quantum vacuum. Quantum vacuum. Once again, if there's a vacuum, there's nothing there. And science has to deal with processes that we know. And the processes we know tell us something doesn't come out of nothing. Now, I just want to make a comment, too, on the fossil record. If evolution brought us to where we are today, how come today we have all men and all apes, all birds, all dogs, all cats? Why don't we have three-fourths of this and one-fourth of that? It would seem to be logical that that would be taking place today. I heard one person say that man's not evolving anymore because he's reached the epitome of what he can be. I'm sort of disappointed we didn't retain our tail. I could be watching TV, hold my remote with the tail, and have my soda here and my sandwich here. But some people are born with tails, so 
Maybe you could. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, that's true. That's and, uh, but with a quantum vacuum, I, I'm like you. I don't know what that. Re- I know quantum means large. Vacuum. I've heard about the string theory. I talked to a young man uh, who was working at check encounter at a hotel down in Statesville, North Carolina, probably a year and a half ago, and started talking to him. He started mentioning the string theory that they started. We got alternate universes. I said, now, how do you know that? So, well, really, I don't know that. He's fascinated by it. There's Multi, a little mu- string. Multiverse, is that what that is? The mul- I've heard. And, and yeah, so many universes. Millions of universes, right. You know, to say that, you could say there are all kinds of buffalo out in space somewhere. Just they're strings, and they're shaking, and universes come into existence. That'll string me out. So I, I do have to apologize on behalf of physicists. We use uh, terms that make sense to us, but not really to other people. And then okay. they, they get out, and it's like, no, it's not. what. So quantum vacuum is a, uh, a, a shorthand for saying the lowest energy configuration of some kind of a system, and particularly a quantum mechanical system, and even more particularly, uh, a system in, in, uh, involving uh, quantum mechanical fields. Our current uh, understanding of of uh, objects is that on the fundamental level, things like electrons and protons, which you might have seen in school diagrams of a little electron whizzing around a proton, that's not that's not really the best description for them. What they are is they're kind of more uh, things that have an, an extent, right? So there is an electron field that exists everywhere in the universe. And what you see as an electron is a little tiny wiggle in that field. And that helps us to understand uh, the, the, the properties, the weird kind of properties we see with electrons. And so the quantum vacuum is just when you look at these fields and you look at the equations, you say, what's the lowest energy configuration? Um, and a lot of times you can say, well, that's zero energy or minimum energy, or you don't even ask whether it's zero or what that value is. You just talk about how much energy there is above it because if you're interacting with it, you're giving energy, you're taking energy, and you're talking about how far have I gone above my bottom point. So the quantum vacuum is just saying it's just the um, it's the zero energy state or the lowest energy state. I don't want to say zero. It's the lowest energy state. So it is true that this is a thing that we think and we just our, our model has in it as a part. You know these fields that exist everywhere in nature, and they don't. They're not. They are not created or destroyed. Um, disturbances in them, which we would view as the little particles, are what's created and destroyed. So it does seem to me to be a very perfectly good question to say, okay, you have an early universe, and this is one of the things where I really disagree with Larry, uh, Lawrence Krauss, about this kind of thing, is that, you know, to say that these fields came into existence, we have no observation of anything like that. All that we see are changes in the different field and energy transferring from one form to another. We do not see the creation of these fields. Um, so I think to say that they were created at some point is is uh, <laughs> base speculation and really uh, does us a disservice. But quantum vacuum is it, it's really it's a technical term. It's not it's not the absence of anything whatsoever in our current theories. That doesn't that doesn't there, that doesn't happen. We always have something everywhere, um, and that seems to be the best mathematical fit for our observations. Aren't you? Okay, I think I sort of understood that. 
that's cool. I'll, I'll pull out a pen and we can get the equations yeah. going later. I was going to say, we'll get you a blackboard or a computer so that you can start doing diagrams or whatever it is. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think what I, I, you know, I think part of what I hear each saying, you know, is delving into all this stuff is quite interesting. It's illuminating on some level, but it also leaves questions. I, I think both sides, we, we probably could say that uh, from what I'm hearing. Uh, but at the same time, you do try to arrive at some conclusion in life. That's what you're trying to do. And you have to individually be comfortable with where you land, you know, uh, while trying to be intellectually consistent and, and you know, not fooling yourself. Uh, I think I hear uh, Mike say that to some degree. I think I hear that Dr. Lewis say that to some degree. I think on your side, you're saying, you know, you're willing to say that there are some things that some people are going to speculate about almost as fact, but yet we haven't gotten to that point yet. And so you're waiting uh, and probably, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but even in terms of uh, God, metaphysical things, uh, these kind of spirit, things like that, you know, you can't observe them under a microscope. So uh, we hold back on that. We don't jump in and believe. And I think, though, on the Christian side, which I happen to be a Christian minister, we have our own set of criteria and evidences. And so we grab onto those, and some things we don't know, some things we, we believe. I think the same thing is true on the scientific side. Some things they don't know, but some things they believe. I heard John Lennox talk about gravity and said, really, there's no uh, consistent intellectual or scientific explanation for what gravity is. And yet we believe in that. Um, you know, I read uh, a book uh, talking about that very thing uh, that I thought was quite interesting and quoted a number of different uh, sources, not of all of whom were theists at all or have that perspective. And they were saying the same thing. Same thing with the spiritual side. Some people could point out certain things that are, have uh, this, the appearance of being a question or a mystery or maybe they're incongruous to them. And they're legitimate questions, you know. But we have to keep looking. We have to keep seeking uh, in the various ways that we can. And that would include, as Mike said, uh, Christians being open to the science and delving into it and diving in. And I think it would be good on the other side, maybe atheistic or people who are agnostic or people who maybe just have a naturalistic worldview, and that's what they're functioning on, to try to be as open as possible to the, uh, the, the, the spiritual aspects that could potentially be there. I, I think that the lesson is to seek knowledge and to seek truth. And, uh, you know, whatever that is, I personally believe there is truth of some kind out there, and that is what we're commanded to seek. So, uh, from a Christian's perspective, and I really believe that's what most scientists are looking for. Um, so anyhow, we're, we're running out of time here rapidly. I want to leave a final few minutes, and we're going to limit it uh, to just a couple of minutes for a final statement. And if you can give me a couple of minutes, just hold the red up, and then we're going to say good, our goodbyes and honor these two brave men. Uh, and, and, of course, Dr. Lewis coming into the, the den of lions of the, a bunch of ministers here. Uh, I'm sure we've got some other folks here that would probably identify with his point of view pretty strongly. So ferocious, all those cupcakes out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we do. We overfeed people and lull them into a you know, false sense of security, uh, you know, barbecue and ch- cupcakes. But uh, let's, um, let's go ahead and uh, uh, do that. Let's have Mike begin, give us a couple of minutes, and then we'll finish with Dr. Lewis, and then we're going to recognize them for their contribution to our conference and to uh, seeking truth, knowledge, and information. Let's go. I know one of the questions that you had sent and sent to the professor was what are the implications in your worldview? I think the implications are profound. For if everything happened by random chance, then there is no right, there is no wrong, there are only processes. And therefore, every man will do that which is right in his own eyes. 
It would be no basis to say anything is wrong. If somebody wanted to torture a little baby for fun, you couldn't impose your moral value system on somebody else. I think about all the wars that's been fought, and I'll share this quickly. I was in Muncie, Indiana probably eight years ago, maybe ten years ago. Went out to the Muncie Mall. Pastor Helton had to go to the hospital. His son John took me to the Muncie Mall. And this man walked by, and I didn't know it. He was a history professor at Ball State University. And he started talking to John. John had had him in class, I think. And John introduced me as a minister from Logan, West Virginia. He said, hmm, religion. Look at all the people that's died in religious wars. And I said, sir, if you'll examine it, less than 1.5 million people have died in religious wars as far as we have record of in the annals of history. Most of those conflicts were fought because of territorial conflicts or territorial disputes. I said, but in the 20th century alone, Lenin led the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. He slaughtered, he was an atheist communist. He slaughtered 10 million Russians. His successor, Joe Stalin, atheist communist, slaughtered 30 million Russians. Mao Zedong led the uprising in China in 1949. They ousted Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists of Formosa. In the aftermath, 65 million people were killed. Pol Pot slaughtered at least 2 million people. We found 1.7 million human skeletons in the killing fields of Cambodia. He was an atheist communist. Adolf Hitler said he would never come to understand the Christian lie. He looked forward in his time to the eradication of the Christian faith, and over 60 million people died in World War II. Of course, that's in the Pacific and the uh, Atlantic theaters. So the implications would be this. If there is no God and right or wrong, then it's an anything-goes mentality. I believe ultimately. Now, there are individual people that don't believe in God. I don't believe they would harm a fly. But I'm saying as a general consensus, if there is no objective right and wrong, there's going to be nothing but turmoil and chaos. Thank you very much. Okay, Dr. Lewis, some final comments or thoughts that you have. Yeah, I, I, I think that, um, yeah, as a physicist, I'm not well... Um, I'm not well, I don't have a lot of tools for addressing the evil that is in men's hearts, which is certainly there. And it has caused a lot of destruction. And I will not argue about that. Um, uh, I, I don't understand the causes. I'm, I don't think I'm an evil person myself, but, and I, I just have a hard time understanding why some of those uh, horrific things were done by people. And why to this day horrific things are done. Um, but I do see an advantage that can be made uh, across the, or a, an improvement that can be made across the uh, ideological divides if one looks at their surroundings and pays careful attention to the consequences of their action. Mao Zedong, one of the things that he did, one of the, terrible, of the many terrible things that, that happened, led to a great famine. He saw that, he and his advisors saw that that birds were eating grain in the fields, and they were having problems with starving people. I think it was like something like 12 to 13 million people star just starved. Like it wasn't an intentional kind of thing. They just starved to death because of huge famines. Um, he saw that birds were eating the grain, so he said, kill all the birds. And, and there were big programs out to kill the birds. There were bounties. All the birds were killed. Insects then came by that the birds were eating. Yeah, they were eating a little bit of grain, but they were also eating insects. Destroyed the harvests. Um, and And... I think that there are a lot of things that we have the opportunity, a lot of suffering that we have the opportunity to address if we are careful in our observations. Now, I don't think that Christians 
have any uh, blocks to making these kinds of things. Um, but I would say that that uh, naturalistic worldview has, uh, I think there are places where we have shared concern and, and that we can work together to stop suffering. For example, malaria. Malaria has killed more human beings, as far as we can tell, than any other single source throughout human history. That's one little tiny parasite. Um, we have the possibility, maybe in our lifetimes, to destroy the, the malaria parasite or seriously cripple its ability to, um, to infect and infest people. So I think that there are things that we can do uh, that all of us will agree and can agree to do um, if we can see the humanity in other people, if we can see other people suffering as our own. I do that. I think I, I do that kind of naturally. I agree that there are other people that don't, and we have a real problem in, in figuring out what to do and how to help those people to see uh, the humanity in other people suffering as their own. Because that's a very powerful lesson. I was raised a Christian, and it's one of the things that I will agree with to the ends of, of my existence, that we are better when we do that. So I think we're, we're only truly human when we do that. Um, but as to, you know, evil and things, I'm not. That's, that's a big, that's a big question. That's a question for another hockey yeah. game. We'll do that later, you know. We'll debate that some other time. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I want to present these two gentlemen to you. I think they've done a wonderful job, each of them, representing their point of view. Let's stand up here so we can stretch our legs. And uh, I'm very blessed that they're here.